everyone, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, and why not get something sent to you in the mail? Feel like uh, you're getting something, you know? Hey, get something in the mail during self-isolation. Yeah, that's it. Bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely to put a timestamp on when this show's coming out. It is March 20-somethingth. I've kind of quit, I don't know, caring about the time. Um, it's just kind of a countdown till late April when the kids go back to school, and I can, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly just waiting for free tests, or not tests, just, I'm waiting for tests to be available in my area so I can go back to work, because I was sick, now I'm not sick, and I can't go back to work until I test clean. Uh, yeah, so, hey, I'm gonna be doing this for a while, I'm bored, uh, none of my podcasts are podcasting because of the fact that everyone's sick, doesn't want to be around each other. This is the great thing about being a one-man show. I just find stuff, I put it up, and I put it out. I'm probably going to be doing some Skype interviews with some folks to keep this train moving. I want you to have entertainment. That's what I've always wanted. I've wanted to, you know, people who can't read. I want them to be able to read and listen to uh, some classic literature. People who have learning disabilities and you know, don't like to read. I want them to know who the classics are, my brother Joe. And this is this is kind of why I do this. And also, it's nice to have stuff to listen to all day long. I listen to podcasts all day long when I'm not making podcasts or working on stuff that I can't listen to podcasts. And I just want to say, support small podcasts. You know, there's all those, like, ear howls out there and you're your big media types and stuff like that support small podcasts help keep us going we keep you going we fill your day with all kinds of stuff help keep us going especially in a time like this where some of us are unemployed if you want to do that that'd be great there's more important stuff to give money and time to than podcasters right now i'll be super super duper serious about that so do what you can and remember we are available on facebook um you know, PGTTCM Black Clock Audio Tales, Arthur Mackin's Three Imposters. This is one that I've done bits and pieces of when it was uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos 24-7. But now, hey, with this, with Black Clock Audio Tales, I finally get to cover it. If you want to go back through the catalogs and listen to old stuff, I've got various people recording this back when I was trying to do that. But hey, here we go. Three Imposters. We're available on Instagram. And also anywhere that you're going to find podcasts and Black Clock Audio Tales Special Edition. Novel of the Dark Valley, Part 2. I crawled home like a wounded beast and laid down on my bed. It was all a hopeless puzzle to me. I knew nothing but rage and shame and terror and I suffered little more when I passed by a house in an adjacent valley, and some children who were playing outside ran from me shrieking. I was forced to walk to find some occupation. I should have died if I had sat down quietly in Blue Rock Park and looked all day at the mountains. But whenever I saw a human being, I saw the same glance of hatred and aversion. And once, as I was crossing a thick break, I heard a shot and the venomous hiss of a bullet close to my ear. One day, 
I heard a conversation which astounded me. I was sitting behind a rock resting, and two men came along the track and halted. One of them had got his feet entangled in some wild vines and swore fiercely, but the other laughed and said they were useful things sometimes. What the hell do you mean? Oh, nothing much, but they're uncommon tough, these here vines, and sometimes rope is scarce and dear. The man who had sworn chuckled at this, and I heard them sit down and light their pipes. Have you seen him lately? asked the humorist. I sighted him the other day, but the darn bullet went high. He's got his master's luck, I expect, sir, but it can't last much longer. You heard about him going to Jinx and trying his brass, but the young British who downed him pretty considerable, I can tell you. What the devil's the meaning of it? I don't know, but I believe it'll have to be finished and done in the old style, too. You know how they fix the niggers. Yes, sir. I've seen a little of that. A couple of gallons of kerosene will cost a dollar at Brown's store, but I should say it's cheap anyway. They moved off after this, and I lay still behind the rock, the sweat pouring down my face. I was so sick that I could barely stand, and I walked home as slowly as an old man, leaning on my stick. I knew that the two men had been talking about me, and I knew that some terrible death was in store for me. That night I could not sleep. I tossed on the rough bed and tortured myself to find out the meaning of it all. At last, in the very dead of night, I rose from the bed and put on my clothes and went out. I did not care where I went, but I felt that I must walk till I tired myself out. It was a clear moonlight night, and in a couple of hours I found I was approaching a place of dismal reputation in the mountains, a deep cleft in the rocks known as Black Gulf Canyon. Many years before, an unfortunate party of Englishmen and Englishwomen had camped here and had been surrounded by Indians. They were captured, outraged, and put to death with almost inconceivable tortures, and the roughest of the trappers or woodsmen gave the canyon a wide berth, even in the daytime. As I crushed through the dense brushwood which grew above the canyon, I heard voices, and wondering who could be in such a place at such a time, I went on walking more carefully and making as little noise as possible. There was a great tree growing on the very edge of the rocks, and I lay down and looked out from behind the trunk. Black Gulf Canyon was below me, the moonlight shining bright into its very depths from mid-heaven and casting shadows as black as death from the pointed rock and all the sheer rock on the other side overhanging the canyon was in darkness at intervals a light veil obscured the moonlight as a filmy cloud fleeted across the moon and a bitter wind blew shrill across the gulf. I looked down, as I have said, and saw twenty men standing in a semicircle round a rock. I counted them one by one, and knew most of them, 
they were the very vilest of the vile more vile than any din in london could show and there was murder worse than murder on the heads of not a few facing them and me stood mr smith with the rock before him and on the rock was a great pair of scales such as are used in the stores i heard his voice ringing down the canyon as i lay beside the tree and my heart turned cold as i heard it life for gold he cried a life for gold the blood and the life of an enemy for every pound of gold a man stepped out and raised one hand and with the other flung a bright lump of something into the pan of the scales which clanged down and smith muttered something in his ear then he cried again blood for gold for a pound of gold the life of an enemy for every pound of gold upon the scales a life one by one the men came forward each lifting up his right hand and the gold was weighed in the scales and each time smith leant forward and spoke to each man in his ear then he cried again desire and lust for gold on the scales for every pound of gold enjoyment of desire i saw the same thing happen as before the uplifted hand and the metal weighed and the mouth whispering and black passion on every face then one by one i saw the men again step up to smith a muttered conversation seemed to take place i could see that smith was explaining and directing and i noticed that he gesticulated a little as one who points out the way and once or twice he moved his hands quickly as if he would show the path was clear and could not be missed i kept my eyes so intently on his figure that i noted little else and at last it was with a start that i realized that the canyon was empty a moment before i thought i had seen the group of villainous faces and the two standing a little apart by the rock i had looked down a moment and when i glanced again into the canyon there was no one there in dumb terror i made my way home and i fell asleep in an instant from exhaustion no doubt i should have slept on for many hours but when i woke up the sun was only rising and the light shone in on my bed i had started up from sleep with the sensation of having received a violent shock and as i looked in confusion about me i saw to my amazement that there were three men in the room one of them had his hand on my shoulder and spoke to me come mister wake up your time's up now i reckon and the boys are waiting for you outside and they're in a big hurry come on you can put on your clothes it's kind of chilly this morning i saw the other two men smiling sourly at each other but i understood nothing i simply pulled on my clothes and said i was ready all right come on then you go first nichols and jim and i will give the gentleman an arm they took me out into the sunlight and then i understood the meaning of a dull murmur that had vaguely perplexed me while i was dressing 
There were about two hundred men waiting outside, and some women too, and when they saw me there was a low muttering growl. I did not know what I had done, but that noise made my heart beat, and the sweat come out on my face. I saw confusedly as through a veil the tumult and tossing of the crowd, discordant voices were speaking, and among all those faces there was not one glance of mercy, but a fury of lust that I did not understand. I found myself presently walking in a sort of procession up the slope of the valley, and on every side of me there were men with revolvers in their hands. Now and then a voice struck me, and I heard words and sentences of which I could form no connected story, but I understood that there was one sentence of execration. I heard scraps of stories that seemed strange and improbable. Someone was talking of men lured by cunning devices from their homes and murdered with hideous tortures, found writhing like wounded snakes in dark and lonely places, only crying for someone to stab them in the heart, and so in their anguish. And I heard another voice speaking of innocent girls who had vanished for a day or two, and then had come back and died blushing red with shame, even in the agonies of death. I wondered what it all meant, and what was to happen. But I was so weary that I walked on in a dream, scarcely longing for anything but sleep. At last we stopped. We had reached the summit of a hill overlooking Blue Rock Valley, and I saw that I was standing beneath a clump of trees where I had often sat. I was in the midst of a ring of armed men, and I saw that two or three men were very busy with piles of wood, while others were fingering a rope. Then there was a stir in the crowd, and a man was pushed forward. His hands and feet were tightly bound with cord, and though his face was unutterably villainous, I pitied him for the agony that worked his features and twisted his lips. I knew him. He was amongst those that had gathered round Smith in Black Gulf Canyon. In an instant he was unbound and stripped naked, born beneath one of the trees, and his neck encircled by a noose that went around the trunk. The hoarse voice gave some kind of order. There was a rush of feet, and the rope tightened, and there before me I saw the blackened face, and the writhing limbs, and the shameful agony of death. One after another, half a dozen men, all of whom I had seen in the canyon the night before, were strangled before me and their bodies were flung forth on the ground. Then there was a pause, and the man who had roused me a short while before came up to me and said, Now, mister, it's your turn. We give you five minutes to cast up your accounts, and when that's clocked, by the living God, we will burn you alive at that tree. It was then I awoke and understood. I cried out, Why? What have I done? Why should you hurt me? I am a harmless man. I never did you any wrong. I covered my face with my hands. It seemed so pitiful, and it was such a terrible death. What have I done? I cried again. You must take me for some other man. 
you cannot know me you black-hearted devil said the man at my side we know you well enough there's not a man within thirty miles of this that won't curse jack smith when you are burning in hell my name's not smith i said with some hope left in me my name is wilkins i was mr smith's secretary but i knew nothing of him hark at the black liar said the man secretary be damned you were clever enough i dare say to slink out at night and keep your face in the dark but we've tracked you out at last but your time's up come along i was dragged to the tree and bound to it with chains i saw the piles of wood heaped all about me and shut my eyes then i felt myself drenched all over with some liquid and looked again and a woman grinned at me she had just emptied a great can of petroleum over me and over the wood a voice shouted fire away and i fainted and knew nothing more when i opened my eyes i was lying on a bed in a bare comfortless room a doctor was holding some strong salts to my nostrils and a gentleman standing by the bed whom i afterwards found to be the sheriff addressed me say mister he began you've had an uncommon narrow squeak for it the boys were just about lighting up when i came along with the posse and i had as much as i could do to bring you off i can tell you and mind you i don't blame them they had made up their minds you see that you were the head of the black gulf gang and at first nothing i could say would persuade em that you weren't jack smith luckily a man from here named evans that came along with us allowed he had seen you with jack smith and that you were yourself so we brought you along and jailed you but you can go if you like when you're through with this faint turn i got on the cars the next day and in three weeks i was in london again almost penniless but from that time my fortune seemed to change i made influential friends in all directions bank directors courted my company and editors positively flung themselves into my arms i had only to choose my career and after a while i determined that i was meant by nature for a life of comparative leisure with an ease that seemed almost ridiculous i obtained a well-paid position in connection with a prosperous political club i have charming chambers in a central neighborhood close to the parks the club chef exerts himself when i lunch or dine and the rarest vintages in the cellar are always at my disposal yet since my return to london i have never known a day's security or peace i tremble when i awake lest smith should be standing at my bed and every step i take seems to bring me nearer to the edge of the precipice smith i knew had escaped free from the raid of the vigilantes and i grew faint at the thought that he would in all probability return to london and that suddenly and unprepared i should meet him face to face every morning as i left my house i would peer up and down the street expecting to see that dreaded figure awaiting me i have delayed at street corners my heart in my mouth 
sickening at the thought that a few quick steps might bring us together. I could not bear to frequent the theaters or music halls, lest by some bizarre chance he should prove to be my neighbor. Sometimes I've been forced against my will to walk out at night, and then in silent squares the shadows have made me shudder, and in the medley of meetings in the crowded thoroughfares, I have said to myself, it must come sooner or later. He will surely return to London, and I shall see him when I feel most secure. I scan the newspapers for hint or intimation of approaching danger, and no small type nor report of trivial interest was allowed to pass unread. Especially I read and reread the advertisement columns, but without result. Months passed by, and I was undisturbed till, though I felt far from safe, I no longer suffered from the intolerable oppression of instant and ever-present terror. This afternoon, as I was walking quietly along Oxford Street, I raised my eyes and looked across the road, and then at last I saw the man who had so long haunted my thoughts. Mr. Wilkins finished his wine and leant back in his chair, looking sadly at Dyson, and then, as if a thought struck him, fished out of an inner pocket a leather letter case and handed a newspaper cutting across the table. Dyson glanced closely at the slip and saw that it had been extracted from the columns of an evening paper. It ran as follows, wholesale lynching, shocking story. A Dotsil telegram from Reading, Colorado, states that advices received there from Blue Rock Park report a frightful instance of popular vengeance. For some time the neighborhood has been terrorized by the crimes of a gang of desperados who, under the cover of a carefully planned organization, have perpetrated the most infamous cruelties on men and women. A vigilance committee was formed, and it was found that the leader of the gang was a person named Smith living in Blue Rock Park. Action was taken, and six of the worst in the band were summarily strangled in the presence of two or three hundred men and women. Smith is said to have escaped. This is a terrible story, said Dyson. I can well believe that your days and nights are haunted by such fearful scenes as you have described, but surely you have no need to fear Smith. He has much more cause to fear you. Consider, you have only to lay your information before the police, and a warrant would be immediately issued for his arrest. Besides, you will, I am sure, excuse me for what I am going to say. My dear sir, said Mr. Wilkins, I hope you will speak to me with perfect freedom. Well then, I must confess that my impression was that you were rather disappointed at not being able to stop the man before he drove off. I thought you seemed annoyed that you could not get across the street. Sir, I did not know what I was about. I caught sight of the man, but it was only for a moment, and the agony you witnessed was the agony of suspense. I was not perfectly certain of the face and the horrible thought that Smith was again in London overwhelmed me. I shuddered at the idea of this incarnate fiend whose soul is black with shocking crimes. 
mingling free and unobserved amongst the harmless crowds meditating perhaps a new and more fearful cycle of infamies i tell you sir that an awful being stalks through the streets a being before whom the sunlight itself should blacken and the summer air grow chill and dank such thoughts as these rushed upon me with the force of a whirlwind i lost my senses i see i partly understand your feelings but i would impress on you that you have nothing really to fear depend upon it smith will not molest you in any way you must remember he himself has had a warning and indeed from the brief glance i had of him he seemed to me to be a frightened-looking man however i see it is getting late and if you will excuse me mr wilkins i think i will be going i dare say we shall often meet here dyson walked off smartly pondering the strange story chance had brought him and finding on cool reflection that there was something a little strange in mr wilkins's manner for which not even so weird a catalogue of experiences could altogether account end of novel of the dark valley adventure of the missing brother mr charles phillips was as has been hinted a gentleman of pronounced scientific tastes in his early days he had devoted himself with fond enthusiasm to the agreeable study of biology and a brief monograph on the embryology of the microscopic holothuria had formed his first contribution to the belle lettre later he had somewhat relaxed the severity of his pursuits and had dabbled in the more frivolous subjects of paleontology and ethnology he had a cabinet in his sitting-room whose drawers were stuffed with rude flint implements and a charming fetish from the south seas was the dominant note in the decorative scheme of the apartment flattering himself with the title of materialist he was in truth one of the most credulous of men but he required a marvel to be neatly draped in the robes of science before he would give it any credit and the wildest dreams took solid shape to him if only the nomenclature were severe and irreproachable he laughed at the witch but quailed before the powers of the hypnotist lifting his eyebrows when christianity was mentioned but adoring protyle and the ether for the rest he prided himself on a boundless skepticism the average tale of wonder he heard with nothing but contempt and he would certainly not have credited a word or syllable of dyson's story of the pursuer and pursued unless the gold coin had been produced as visible and tangible evidence as it was he half suspected that dyson had imposed on him he knew his friend's disordered fancies and his habit of conjuring up the marvelous to account for the entirely commonplace and on the whole he was inclined to think that the so-called facts in the odd adventure had been gravely distorted in the telling since the evening on which he had listened to the tale he had paid dyson a visit and had delivered himself of some serious talk on the necessity of accurate observation and the folly as he put it of using a kaleidoscope instead of a telescope in the view of things to which remarks his friend had listened with a smile 
that was extremely sardonic my dear fellow dyson had remarked at last you will allow me to tell you that i see your drift perfectly however you will be astonished to hear that i consider you to be the visionary while i am a sober and serious spectator of human life you have gone round the circle and while you fancy yourself far in the golden land of new philosophies you are in reality a dweller in metaphorical clapham your skepticism has defeated itself and become a monstrous credulity you are in fact in the position of the bat or owl i forget which it was who denied the existence of the sun at noonday and i shall be astonished if you do not one day come to me full of contrition for your manifold intellectual errors with a humble resolution to see things in their true light for the future this tirade had left mr phillips unimpressed he considered dyson as hopeless and he went home to gloat over some primitive stone implements that a friend had sent him from india he found that his landlady seeing them displayed in all their rude formlessness upon the table had removed the collection to the dustbin and had replaced it by lunch and the afternoon was spent in malodorous research mrs brown hearing these stones spoken of as very valuable knives had called him in his hearing poor mr phillips and between rage and evil odors he spent a sorry afternoon it was four o'clock before he had completed his work of rescue and overpowered with the flavors of decaying cabbage leaves phillips felt that he must have a walk to gain an appetite for the evening meal unlike dyson he walked fast with his eyes on the pavement absorbed in his thoughts and oblivious of the life around him and he could not have told by what streets he had passed when he suddenly lifted up his eyes and found himself in leicester square the grass and flowers pleased him and he welcomed the opportunity of resting for a few minutes and glancing around he saw a bench which had only one occupant a lady and as she was seated at one end phillips took up a position at the other extremity and began to pass in angry review the events of the afternoon he had noticed as he came up to the bench that the person already there was neatly dressed and to all appearance young her face he could not see as it was turned away in apparent contemplation of the shrubs and moreover shielded with her hand but it would be doing wrong to mr phillips to imagine that his choice of a seat was dictated by any hopes of an affair of the heart he had simply preferred the company of one lady to that of five dirty children and having seated himself was immersed directly in thoughts of his misfortunes he had meditated changing his lodgings but now on a judicial review of the case in all its bearings his calmer judgment told him that the race of landladies is like to the race of the leaves and that there was but little to choose between them he resolved however to talk to mrs brown the offender very coolly and yet severely to point out the extreme indiscretion of her conduct and to express a hope for better things in the future with this decision registered in his mind phillips was about to get up from the seat and move off when he was intensely annoyed to hear a stifled sob 
evidently from the lady, who still continued her contemplation of the shrubs and flower beds. He clutched his stick desperately, and in a moment would have been in full retreat when the lady turned her face towards him, and with a mute entreaty bespoke his attention. She was a young girl with a quaint and piquant rather than a beautiful face, and she was evidently in the bitterest distress. Mr. Phillips sat down again and cursed his chances heartily. The young lady looked at him with a pair of charming eyes of a shining hazel which showed no trace of tears, though a handkerchief was in her hand. She bit her lip and seemed to struggle with some overpowering grief, and her whole attitude was all beseeching and imploring. Phillips sat on the edge of the bench gazing awkwardly at her, and wondering what was to come next, and she looked at him still without speaking. "'Well, madam,' he said at last, "'I understood from your gesture that you wished to speak to me. Is there anything I can do for you? Though, if you will pardon me, I cannot help saying that it seems highly improbable.' "'Ah, sir,' she said in a low murmuring voice, "'do not speak harshly to me. I am in sore straits.' and I thought from your face that I could safely ask your sympathy, if not your help. Would you kindly tell me what is the matter, said Phillips. Perhaps you would like some tea. I knew I could not be mistaken, the lady replied. That offer of refreshment bespeaks a generous mind. The tea, alas, is powerless to console me. If you will let me, I shall endeavor to explain my trouble. I should be glad if you would. I shall do so and I shall try to be brief, in spite of the numerous complications which have made me, young as I am, tremble before what seems the profound and terrible mystery of existence. Yet the grief which now racks my very soul is but too simple. I have lost my brother. Lost your brother? How on earth can that be? I see I must trouble you with a few particulars. My brother, then, who is by some years my elder, is a tutor in a private school in the extreme north of London. The want of means deprived him of the advantages of a university education, and lacking the stamp of a degree, he could not hope for that position which his scholarship and his talents entitled him to claim. He was thus forced to accept the post of classical master at Dr. Saunderson's Highgate Academy for the Sons of Gentlemen. He has performed his duties with perfect satisfaction to his principal for some years. My personal history need not trouble you. It will be enough if I tell you that for the last month I have been governess in a family residing at Tooting. My brother and I have always cherished the warmest mutual affection, and those circumstances into which I need not enter have kept us apart for some time, yet we have never lost sight of one another. We made up our minds that unless one of us was absolutely unable to rise from a bed of sickness, we should never let a week pass without meeting, and some time ago we chose this square as our rendezvous on account of its central position and its convenience of access. And indeed, after a week of distasteful toil, my brother felt little inclination for much walking, and we have often spent two or three hours on this bench, speaking of our prospects of happier days, when we were children. In the early spring it was cold and chilly, still we enjoyed the short respite, and 
I think that we were often taken for a pair of lovers as we sat close together, eagerly talking. Saturday after Saturday we have met each other here, and though the doctor told him it was madness, my brother would not allow the influenza to break the appointment. That was some time ago. Last Saturday we had a long and happy afternoon and separated more cheerfully than usual, feeling that the coming week would be bearable and resolving that our next meeting should be, if possible, still more pleasant. I arrived here at the time agreed upon, four o'clock, and sat down and watched for my brother, expecting every moment to see him advancing towards me from that gate at the north side of the square. Five minutes passed by, and he had not arrived. I thought that he must have missed his train, and the idea that our interview would be cut short by twenty minutes or perhaps half an hour saddened me. I had hoped we should be so happy together today. Suddenly, moved by I know not what impulse, I turned abruptly round, and how can I describe to you my astonishment when I saw my brother advancing slowly towards me from the southern side of the square, accompanied by another person? My first thought, I remember, had in it something of resentment that this man, whoever he was, should intrude himself into our meeting. I wondered who it could possibly be, for my brother had, I may say, no intimate friends. Then, as I looked still at the advancing figures, another feeling took possession of me. It was a sensation of bristling fear, the fear of the child in the dark, unreasonable and unreasoning, but terrible, clutching at my heart as if with the cold grip of a dead man's hands. Yet I overcame the feeling and looked steadily at my brother, waiting for him to speak, and more closely at his companion. Then I noticed that this man was leading my brother rather than walking arm in arm with him. He was a tall man, dressed in quite ordinary fashion. He wore a high bowler hat and, in spite of the warmth of the day, a plain black overcoat, tightly buttoned, and I noticed his trousers of a quiet black and grey stripe. His face was commonplace too, and indeed I cannot recall any special features or any trick of expression, for though I looked at him as he came near, curiously enough his face made no impression on me. It was as though I had seen a well-made mask. They passed in front of me, and to my unutterable astonishment I heard my brother's voice speaking to me, though his lips did not move, nor his eyes look into mine. It was a voice I cannot describe, though I knew it, but the words came to my ears as if mingled with plashing water and the sound of a shallow brook flowing amid stones. I heard then the words, I cannot stay, and for a moment the heavens and the earth seemed to rush together with the sound of thunder and I was thrust forth from the world into a black void without beginning and without end. For as my brother passed me, I saw the hand that held him by the arm and seemed to guide him, and in one moment of horror I realized that it was as a formless thing that has moldered for many years in the grave. The flesh was peeled in strips from the bones and hung apart dry and granulated and the fingers that encircled my brother's arm were all unshapen, claw-like things, and one was but a stump from which the end had rotted off. 
when i recovered my senses i saw the two passing out by that gate i paused for a moment and then with a rush as a fire to my heart i knew that no horror could stay me but that i must follow my brother and save him even though all hell rose up against me i ran out and looked up the pavement and saw the two figures walking amidst the crowd i ran across the road and saw them turn up that side street and i reached the corner a moment later in vain i looked to right and left for neither my brother nor his strange guardian was in sight two elderly men were coming down arm in arm and a telegraph boy was walking lustily along whistling i remained there a moment horror-struck and then i bowed my head and returned to this seat where you found me now sir do you wonder at my grief oh tell me what has happened to my brother or i feel i shall go mad mr phillips who had listened with exemplary patience to this tale hesitated a moment before he spoke my dear madam he said at length you have known how to engage me in your service not only as a man but as a student of science as a fellow creature i pity you most profoundly you must have suffered extremely from what you saw or rather from what you fancied you saw for as a scientific observer it is my duty to tell you the plain truth which indeed besides being true must also console you allow me to ask you then to describe your brother certainly said the lady eagerly i can describe him accurately my brother is a somewhat young-looking man he is pale has small black whiskers and wears spectacles he has rather a timid and almost frightened expression and looks about him nervously from side to side think think surely you must have seen him perhaps you are an habitué of this engaging quarter you may have met him on some previous saturday i may have been mistaken in supposing that he turned up that side street he may have gone on and you may have passed each other oh tell me sir whether you have not seen him i am afraid i do not keep a very sharp lookout when i am walking said phillips who would have passed his mother unnoticed but i am sure your description is admirable and now will you describe the person who you say held your brother by the arm i cannot do so i told you his face seemed devoid of expression or salient feature it was like a mask exactly you cannot describe what you have never seen i need hardly point out to you the conclusion to be drawn you have been the victim of an hallucination you expected to see your brother you were alarmed because you did not see him and unconsciously no doubt your brain went to work and finally you saw a mere projection of your own morbid thoughts a vision of your absent brother and a mere confusion of terrors incorporated in a figure which you can't describe of course your brother has been in some way prevented from coming to meet you as usual i expect you will hear from him in a day or two the lady looked seriously at mr phillips and then for a second there seemed almost a twinkling as of a mirth about her eyes but her face clouded sadly at the dogmatic conclusions to which the scientist was led so irresistibly ah she said you do not know i cannot doubt the evidence of my waking senses besides perhaps i have had experiences even more terrible 
I acknowledge the force of your arguments, but a woman has intuitions which never deceive her. Believe me, I am not hysterical. Feel my pulse. It is quite regular. She stretched out her hand with a dainty gesture, and a glance that enraptured Phillips in spite of himself. The hand held out to him was soft and white and warm, and as in some confusion he placed his fingers on the purple vein, he felt profoundly touched by the spectacle of love and grief before him. No, he said as he released her wrist, as you say, you are evidently quite yourself. Still, you must be aware that living men do not possess dead hands. That sort of thing doesn't happen. It is, of course, barely possible that you did see your brother with another gentleman, and that important business prevented him from stopping. As for the wonderful hand, there may have been some deformity, a finger shot off by accident or something of that sort. The lady shook her head mournfully. I see that you are a determined rationalist, she said. Did you not hear me say that I have had experiences even more terrible? I too was once a skeptic, but after what I have known, I can no longer affect to doubt. Madam, replied Mr. Phillips, no one shall make me deny my faith. I will never believe, nor will I pretend to believe, that two and two make five, nor will I on any pretenses admit the existence of two-sided triangles. You are a little hasty, rejoined the lady. But may I ask you if you ever heard the name of Professor Gregg, the authority on ethnology and kindred subjects? I have done much more than merely hear of Professor Gregg, said Phillips. I always regarded him as one of our most acute and clear-headed observers, and his last publication, the textbook of ethnology, struck me as being quite admirable in its kind. Indeed, the book had but come into my hands when I heard of the terrible accident which cut short Gregg's career. He had, I think, taken a country house in the west of England for the summer, and is supposed to have fallen into a river. So far as I remember, his body was never recovered. Sir, I am sure that you are discreet. Your conversation seems to declare as much, and the very title of that little work of yours which you mentioned assures me that you are no empty trifler. In a word, I feel that I may depend on you. You appear to be under the impression that Professor Gregg is dead. I have no reason to believe that it is the case. What? cried Phillips, astonished and perturbed. You do not hint that there was anything disgraceful. I cannot believe it. Gregg was a man of clearest character. His private life was one of great benevolence. And though I myself am free from delusions, I believe him to have been a sincere and devout Christian. Surely you cannot mean to insinuate that some disreputable history forced him to flee the country. Again, you are in a hurry, replied the lady. I said nothing of all this. Briefly then, I must tell you that Professor Gregg left his house one morning in full health, both of mind and body. He never returned. But his watch and chain, a purse containing three sovereigns in gold, and some loose silver with a ring that he wore habitually, were found three days later on a wild and savage hillside many miles from the river. These articles were placed beside a limestone rock of fantastic form, 
they had been wrapped into a parcel with a kind of rough parchment which was secured with gut the parcel was opened and the inner side of the parchment bore an inscription done with some red substance in the characters which were undecipherable but seemed to be a corrupt cuneiform you interest me intensely said phillips would you mind continuing your story the circumstance you have mentioned seems to me of the most inexplicable character and i thirst for an elucidation the young lady seemed to meditate for a moment and then she proceeded to relate the novel of the black seal end of adventure of the missing brother novel of the black seal part one i must now give you some fuller particulars of my history i am the daughter of a civil engineer stephen lally by name who was so unfortunate as to die suddenly at the outset of his career and before he had accumulated sufficient means to support his wife and her two children my mother contrived to keep the small household going on resources which must have been incredibly small we lived in a remote country village because most of the necessities of life were cheaper than in a town but even so we were brought up with the severest economy my father was a clever and well-read man and left behind him a small but select collection of books containing the best greek latin and english classics and these books were the only amusement we possessed my brother i remember learnt latin out of descartes meditationes and i in place of the little tales which children are usually told to read had nothing more charming than a translation of the gesta romanorum we grew up thus quiet and studious children and in course of time my brother provided for himself in the manner i have mentioned i continued to live at home my poor mother had become an invalid and demanded my continual care and about two years ago she died after many months of painful illness my situation was a terrible one the shabby furniture barely sufficed to pay the debts i had been forced to contract and the books i dispatched to my brother knowing how he would value them i was absolutely alone i was aware how poorly my brother was paid and though i came up to london in the hope of finding employment with the understanding that he would defray my expenses i swore that it should only be for a month and that if i could not in that time find some work i would starve rather than deprive him of the few miserable pounds he had laid by for his day of trouble i took a little room in a distant suburb the cheapest that i could find i lived on bread and tea and i spent my time in vain answering of advertisements and vainer walks to addresses i had noted day followed on day and week on week and still i was unsuccessful till at last the term i had appointed drew to a close and i saw before me the grim prospect of slowly dying of starvation my landlady was good-natured in her way she knew the slenderness of my means and i am sure that she would not have turned me out of doors it remained for me then to go away and to try to die in some quiet place it was winter then and a thick white fog gathered in the early part of the afternoon becoming more dense as the day wore on it was a sunday i remember and the people of the house were at chapel at about three o'clock 
I crept out and walked away as quickly as I could, for I was weak from abstinence. The white mist wrapped all the streets in silence. A hard frost had gathered thick upon the bare branches of the trees, and frost crystals glittered on the wooden fences and on the cold, cruel ground beneath my feet. I walked on, turning to right and left in utter haphazard, without caring to look up at the names of the streets, and all that I remember of my walk on that Sunday afternoon seems but the broken fragments of an evil dream. In a confused vision I stumbled on through roads, half-town and half-country, gray fields melting into the cloudy world of mist on one side of me, and on the other comfortable villas with a glow of firelight flickering on the walls, but all unreal, red brick walls and lighted windows, vague trees and glimmering country, gas lamps beginning to star the white shadows, the vanishing perspectives of the railway line beneath high embankments, the green and red of the signal lamps. All these were but momentary pictures flashed on my tired brain and senses, numb by hunger. Now and then I would hear a quick step ringing on the iron road, and men would pass me well wrapped up, walking fast for the sake of warmth, and no doubt eagerly foretasting the pleasures of a glowing hearth, with curtains tightly drawn about the frosted panes, and the welcomes of their friends. But as the early evening darkened and night approached, foot passengers got fewer and fewer, and I passed through street after street alone. In the white silence I stumbled on, as desolate as if I trod the streets of a buried city. And as I grew more weak and exhausted, something of the horror of death was folding thickly round my heart. Suddenly, as I turned a corner, someone accosted me courteously beneath the lamp-post, and I heard a voice asking if I could kindly point the way to Avon Road. At the sudden shock of human accents, I was prostrated and my strength gave way. I fell all huddled on the sidewalk, and wept and sobbed and laughed in violent hysteria. I had gone out prepared to die, and as I stepped across the threshold that had sheltered me, I consciously bade adieu to all hopes and all remembrances. The door clanged behind me with the noise of thunder, and I felt that an iron curtain had fallen on the brief passage of my life, that henceforth I was to walk a little way in a world of gloom and shadow. I entered on the stage of the first act of death. Then came my wandering in the mist, the whiteness wrapping all things, the void streets, the muffled silence, till when that voice spoke to me it was as if I had died and life returned to me. In a few minutes I was able to compose my feelings, and as I rose I saw that I was confronted by a middle-aged gentleman of pleasing appearance, neatly and correctly dressed. He looked at me with an expression of great pity, but before I could stammer out my ignorance of the neighborhood, for indeed I had not the slightest notion of where I had wandered, he spoke. "'My dear madam,' he said, "'you seem in some terrible distress. You cannot think how you alarm me. But uh, may I inquire the nature of your trouble? I assure you that you can safely confide in me.' "'You are very kind,' I replied. "'But I fear there is nothing to be done. My condition seems a hopeless one.' "'Oh, nonsense, nonsense! You are too young to talk like that. Come, let us walk down here.' and you must tell me your difficulty. 
Perhaps I may be able to help you. There was something very soothing and persuasive in his manner, and as we walked together I gave him an outline of my story and told him of the despair that had pressed me almost to death. You were wrong to give in so completely, he said when I was silent. A month is too short a time in which to feel one's way in London. London, let me tell you, Miss Lally, does not lie open and undefended. It is a fortified place, fast and double-moated, with curious intricacies. As must always happen in large towns, the conditions of life have become hugely artificial. No Miss Simple Palisade is run up to oppose the man or woman who would take the place by storm, but serried lines of subtle contrivances, mines and pitfalls, which it needs a strange skill to overcome. You, in your simplicity, fancied you had only to shout for these walls to sink into nothingness, but the time is gone for such startling victories as these. Take courage. You will learn the secrets of success before very long. Alas, sir, I replied, I have no doubt your conclusions are correct, but at the present moment I seem to be in a far way to die of starvation. You spoke of a secret for heaven's sakes. Tell it me, if you have any pity for my distress. He laughed genially. There lies the strangeness of it all. Those who know the secret cannot tell it if they would. It is positively as ineffable as the central doctrine of Freemasonry. But I must say this, that you yourself have penetrated at least the outer husk of the mystery. And he laughed again. Pray do not jest with me, I said. What have I done? Cassage, I am so far ignorant that I have not the slightest idea of how my next meal is to be provided. Excuse me, you ask what you have done? You have met me. Come, we will fence no longer. I see you have self-education, the only education which is not infinitely pernicious, and I am in want of a governess for my two children. I have been a widower for some years. My name is Greg. I offer you the post I have named. And shall we say a salary of a hundred a year? I could only stutter out my thanks and slipping a card with his address and a banknote by way of earnest into my hand, Mr. Gregg bade me good-bye, asking me to call in a day or two. Such was my introduction to Professor Gregg. And can you wonder that the remembrance of despair and the cold blast that had blown from the gates of death upon me made me regard him as a second father? Before the close of the week, I was installed in my new duties. The professor had leased an old brick manor house in a western suburb of London, and here, surrounded by pleasant lawns and orchards, and soothed with the murmur of ancient elms that rocked their boughs above the roof, the new chapter of my life began. Knowing as you do the nature of the professor's occupation, you will not be surprised to hear that the house teemed with books and cabinets full of strange and even hideous objects filled every available nook in the vast low rooms. Greg was a man whose one thought was for knowledge, and I, too, before long caught something of his enthusiasm and strove to enter into his passion of research. In a few months, I was perhaps more his secretary than the governess of the two children, and many a night I have sat at the desk in the glow of the shaded lamp while he, pacing up and down in the rich gloom of the firelight, dictated to me the substance of his textbook of ethnology. But amidst these 
more sober and accurate studies, I always detected a something hidden, a longing and desire for some object to which he did not allude, and now and then he would break short in what he was saying and lapse into reverie, entranced, as it seemed to me, by some distant prospect of adventurous discovery. The textbook was at last finished, and we began to receive proofs from the printers, which were entrusted to me for a first reading and then underwent the final revision of the professor. All the while his wariness of the actual business he was engaged on increased, and it was with the joyous laugh of a schoolboy when term is over that he one day handed me a copy of the book. There, he said, I have kept my word. I promised to write it, and it is done with. Now I shall be free to live for stranger things. I confess it, Miss Lally, I covet the renown of Columbus. You will, I hope, see me play the part of an explorer. Surely, I said, there is little left to explore. You have been born a few hundred years too late for that. I think you are wrong, he replied. There are still, depend upon it, quaint undiscovered countries and continents of strange extent. Ah, Miss Lally, believe me, we stand amidst sacraments and mysteries full of awe, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Life, believe me, is no simple thing, no mass of gray matter and conjuries of veins and muscles to be laid naked by the surgeon's knife. Man is the secret which I am about to explore, and before I can discover him, I must cross over weltering seas indeed and oceans and mists of many thousand years you know the myth of the lost atlantis what if it be true and i am destined to be called the discoverer of that wonderful land i could see excitement boiling beneath his words and in his face was the heat of the hunter before me stood a man who believed himself summoned attorney with the unknown a pang of joy possessed me when I reflected that I was to be in a way associated with him in the adventure, and I too burned with the lust of the chase, not pausing to consider that I knew not what we were to unshadow. The next morning, Professor Gregg took me into his inner study, where ranged against the wall stood a nest of pigeonholes, every drawer neatly labeled and the results of years of toil classified in a few feet of space. Here, he said, is my life. Here are all the facts which I have gathered together with so much pains, and yet it is nothing, no nothing to what I am about to attempt. Look at this. And he took me to an old bureau, a piece fantastic and faded, which stood in a corner of the room. He unlocked the front and opened one of the drawers. A few scraps of paper, he went on, pointing to the drawer, and a lump of black stone rudely annotated with queer marks and scratches. That is all that the drawer holds. Here, you see, is an old envelope with the dark red stamp of twenty years ago. But I have penciled a few lines at the back. Here is a sheet of manuscript, and here some cuttings from obscure local journals. And if you ask me the subject matter of the collection, it will not seem extraordinary. A servant girl at a farmhouse who disappeared from her place and has never been heard of. A child supposed to have slipped down some old working on the mountains. 
some queer scribbling on a limestone rock a man murdered with a blow from a strange weapon such is the scent i have to go upon yes as you say there is a ready explanation for all this the girl may have run away to london or liverpool or new york the child may be at the bottom of the disused shaft the letters on the rock may be the idle whims of some vagrant yes yes i admit all that but i know i hold the true key look and he held out a slip of yellow paper characters found inscribed on a limestone rock on the gray hills i read and then there was a word erased presumably the name of a country and a date some fifteen years back beneath was traced a number of uncouth characters shaped somewhat like wedges or daggers as strange and outlandish as the hebrew alphabet now the seal said professor gregg and he handed me the black stone a thing about two inches long and something like an old-fashioned tobacco stopper much enlarged i held it up to the light and saw to my surprise the characters on the paper repeated on the seal yes said the professor they are the same and the marks on the limestone rock were made fifteen years ago with some red substance and the characters on the seal are four thousand years old at least perhaps more is it a hoax i said no i anticipated that i was not to be led to give my life to a practical joke i have tested the matter very carefully only one person besides myself knows of the mere existence of that black seal besides there are other reasons which i cannot enter into now but what does it all mean i said i cannot understand to what conclusion all this leads my dear miss lally that is a question that i would rather leave unanswered for some little time perhaps i shall never be able to say what secrets are held here in solution a few vague hints the outlines of village tragedies a few marks done with red earth upon a rock and an ancient seal a queer set of data to go upon half a dozen pieces of evidence and twenty years before even so much could be got together and who knows what mirage or terra incognita may be beyond all this i look across deep waters miss lally and the land beyond may be but a haze after all but still i believe it is not so and a few months will show whether i am right or wrong he left me and alone i endeavored to fathom the mystery wondering to what goal such eccentric odds and ends of evidence could lead i myself am not wholly devoid of imagination and i had reason to respect the professor's solidity of intellect yet i saw in the contents of the drawers but the materials of fantasy and vainly tried to conceive what theory could be founded on the fragments that had been placed before me indeed i could discover in what i had heard and seen but the first chapter of an extravagant romance and yet deep in my heart i burned with curiosity and day after day i looked eagerly in professor gregg's face for some hint of what was to happen it was one evening after dinner that the word came i hope you can make your preparations without much trouble he said suddenly to me we shall be leaving here in a week's time really i said in astonishment where are we going i have taken a country house in the west of england not far from kyrmaine a quiet little town once a city 
and the headquarters of a Roman legion. It is very dull there, but the country is pretty, and the air is wholesome. I detected a glint in his eyes, and guessed that this sudden move had some relation to our conversation of a few days before. I shall just take a few books with me, said Professor Gregg. That is all. Everything else will remain here for our return. I have got a holiday, he went on smiling at me, and I shan't be sorry to quit for a time my old bones and stones and rubbish. Do you know, he went on, I have been grinding away at facts for thirty years. It is time for fancies. The days passed quickly. I could see that the professor was all quivering with suppressed excitement, and I could scarce credit the eager appetence of his glance as we left the old manor house behind us and began our journey. We set out at midday, and it was in the dusk of the evening that we arrived at a little country station. I was tired and excited, and the drive through the lane seemed all a dream. First the deserted streets of a forgotten village, while I heard Professor Gregg's voice talking of the Augustan Legion, and the clash of arms, and all the tremendous pomp that followed the eagles. Then the broad river swimming to full tide, with the last afterglow glimmering duskily in the yellow water, the wide meadows, the cornfields whitening, and the deep lane winding on the slope between the hills and the water. At last we began to ascend, and the air grew rarer. I looked down and saw the pure white mist tracking the outline of the river like a shroud, and a vague and shadowy country, imaginations and fantasy of swelling hills and hanging woods and half-shaped outlines of hills beyond, and in the distance the glare of the furnace fire on the mountain, glowing by turns a pillar of shining flame and fading to a dull point of red. We were slowly mounting a carriage drive, and then there came to me the cool breath and the secret of the great wood that was above us. I seemed to wonder in its deepest depths, and there was the sound of trickling water, the scent of the green leaves, and the breath of the summer night. The carriage stopped at last, and I could scarcely distinguish the form of the house as I waited a moment at the pillared porch. The rest of the evening seemed a dream of strange things bounded by the great silence of the wood and the valley and the river. End of Part 1 of Novel of the Black Seal